Welcome to the True Crime TV Podcast, where our hosts cover a variety of these shows, sometimes just one episode, sometimes the whole season. Join us as we get to the bottom of the case together. Welcome back to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of True Crime TV with a special Love It or Leave It edition of Candy, which is premiering on Hulu. Today with me, I have Paul from Pod Clubhouse. Hi, thanks for having me. And I have Colleen from our True Crime series. Hi. So we're here to talk about Candy on Hulu. So Colleen and I are kind of like the true crime aficionados around here. And Yeah. Had you heard about this story before we even get into whatever it is? No, had not heard a word before hearing about this uh, production. We devour a lot of true crime and a lot of my true crime listening and watching prowess comes from recommendations from Colleen. So if she hasn't heard about it, then you know that this is, you know, sort of lore obscura. I'm honestly shocked there's not an Anne rule book about it. Timing wise and <laughs> content wise, I, I grew up in Seattle and I've read way too much Anne Rule and I started way too young. It seems right in her wheelhouse and I'm a little shocked she didn't get to this one. <laughs> I guess, Paul, same question, but seeing how you're in Texas, I'm expecting a little bit more. Well, don't because <laughs> <laughs> I, I had not heard of this. It's maybe the age of the story. I've noticed that on, say, Netflix or the other streaming series or services that that create content and the kind of the ramp up that they have been producing true crime related, say, documentaries and things, they seem to be going back to the same wells. You know, a lot of Ted Bundy, a lot of yes. John Wayne Gacy. Yes. Son of Sam. That's been done. Yes. Yes. Over and over. The Night Stalker was done recently on one of these and so that's like the true crime version of of rebooting (laughs) (laughs) star wars or gi joe or transformers or whatever you know a tried and true franchise so this is maybe um an experimental thing to see what else people might might devour yeah i think this is a big enough genre too in true crime that like you can sort of you know start branching out into some of these more local maybe not hit the national news scene because the national news scene ones we've like you just said like we've seen and devoured so much of this hulu is doing this series that is dropping it's one episode a day for a week leading up to friday the 13th which i think is you know deliciously macabre but (laughs) but also i believe hbo is doing a an original hbo original production as well about candy and it's coming out in the next month or so as well. So there's a weird synergy in terms of timing on this. That was weird in terms of looking up material about this to talk about with uh, the interview that we did with the show cr- creator and show runner. Yes. I didn't want to cross wires <laughs> <laughs> and, and bring up the other show. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That seems to happen, though, with like disaster movies or whatever, you know, like two volcano movies at once. Or... Right, right. Right. Dante's Peak. Yeah, and Volcano, right? Those were, ex- Those, I yeah. think they came out the same summer. Pretty, almost like the same week, oh if I recall. God. It was, just, yeah. Well, actually, this story had been done before. Back in the 90s, 1990, there was a movie called Killing in a Small Town. It starred Barbara Hershey as Candy. Oh. Brian Dennehy as Ed 
Reavers. I, I guess that's probably like a uh, made-up name. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was done to protect the innocent or not so innocent in this case. Those are some pretty big names for 1990. Yeah. There, instead of uh, Betty, there's a Peggy. Uh, oh, okay. Lee Garlington. I don't know her, but her husband, you know, the the one with whom the affair was had is John Terry, who you will know better as Matthew Fox's dad from Lost. <laughs> Christian uh, Shepherd. The title is very movie of the week, though, rather than like theatrical release. Directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal. He's uh, Jake and Maggie's dad. <laughs> We needed that during Pam. <laughs> yes. Colleen was the eagle-eyed one who found, um, who noticed that the, the title cards were written in the Law and Order fonts. And ah, nice. that Easter egg did not come out until long after the series was airing. And I was like, you heard it here first, people, on Pod Clubhouse. <laughs> So Hulu and IMDb, for once, actually have the same summary from Hulu. Candy Montgomery is a 1980s housewife and mother who did everything right. Good husband, two kids, nice house, even the careful planning and execution of transgressions. But when the pressure of conformity builds within her, her actions scream for just a bit of freedom until someone tells her to shush with deadly results. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is magical. <laughs> Probably not the best thing to be laughing about, you know, about after just reading that kind of a. Uh, I know, right? There were a few things line. that we were laughing about in the interview that afterwards I was like, but someone died. <laughs> I no, hang on. Okay, wait a second. I prefaced this in the interview and I'm going to preface it here. We are not psychopaths. Okay. We like mm -hmm. true crime. For me, it is a controlled way to be scared. I don't know. I like mysteries. I, I don't understand how people can go so far off the rails. But however, I still enjoy this. Well, and this is a fictionalized retelling. It's not meant to be an exact history. And, and in doing so, they can put in themes and some assumptions that they want to get across, such as the pent-up rage that the showrunner believes all women or wives in particular feel or at least felt in the 80s but probably still feel today and they were able to do that with both betty and and candy i thought and it allowed you to compare and contrast how, how <laughs> what it was like for each of them and 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 how they they uh they dealt with it so that was kind of cool as compared to say uh, a documentary where um you don't get that sort of emotional insight i guess into the character and build up right or person and since these aren't actually characters they're they right, people right? are people yeah so paul and i were able to do this interview about a week ago with showrunner robin veith and creator nick antosca you know we, we talked we joked briefly in the interview that this is really a good niche for jessica beale because it's like i don't know if i want to see her in anything now if she's not covered in blood right last time you, know, you saw her was probably sinner, the sinner right the sinner yeah. right the first season you know that just kind of took the world by storm I, I remember when that came out a lot of people were talking about it it was a different spin on on sort of like the crime genre it's like we, we know what happened and now let's find out why and and i saw some of that element here we see what the crime is kind of early from the trailer like you see a little bit and then we just got to find out the, the why and it's careful to unravel we're not going to drop spoilers in this half of the conversation the second half will tell you all about what we thought about the nitty gritty. But right now we're going to give you sort of like, 
should you watch it from a high level overview. We're just going to kind of set things up for you and run down if we think this is going to be worth your while. And then second half will be us dissecting it piece by piece. (laughs) Robin, we would have seen her work in Mad Men. She was a writer for Mad Men. She produced, she was a producer listed on True Blood. Um, She's worked on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. So she has some chops in this area. She did the act as well. That that was on Hulu a couple of years ago. That was really good. They both did the act, actually. Yes, that's right. That's right. I knew that the two of them did something together. Yeah. Oh, Nick was on. He was a producer on the latest Chucky. Their their credits skew toward mostly things that have been pretty well received and reasonably heavy in terms of you know, either needing to stick with uh, a particular, like, canon, you know, in terms of, mm-hmm. um, say, the work with Mad Men or um, The Expanse, which is a science fiction, a totally different uh, kind of genre to write in, but one that yeah, had a different a, headspace altogether, but had a, a huge following and um, they needed to follow, you know, rules of the universe, etc. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that was like the major creative team. Which is cool. And they gave a lot of credit to Jessica Beale in terms of being involved, being a very boots on the ground kind of producer. Yeah, because that can vary wildly with executive producer credit. Particularly, say, when a creator or something gets that executive credit or executive producer credit right away and then is never with the show again <laughs> after the yes. first season or whatever. But it's still there. So the major players here, we've got Jessica Beale starring as Candy Montgomery. Melanie Linsky, she plays Betty Gore. We have Pablo Schreiber as Alan Gore, Timothy Simons as Pat Montgomery. Like those are the top build characters. And then you have Don Crowder played by Raul Esparza. If you're thinking, I don't know Melanie Linsky, you probably do. You you just didn't know that was her name. She works a ton. Pull her hair back, pull the bangs off her face, and she looks like a completely different person. <laughs> yeah. And she had a long run on, like, say, Two and a Half Men, um, Togetherness on HBO she was in, Castle Rock. She had yes. a major role in the first season of that. Then more recently, and probably the most attention, has been on Yellow Jackets from Showtime, mm-hmm. where she played Shauna. If you haven't seen Yellow Jackets, don't wait for our Leoli on it. Just go watch it. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, if you want to check out something else that we did a Leoli on, she was in Mrs. America with Kate right. Blanchett back in 2020. She Good played uh, another character in there. She was wonderful in that as well. And then Pablo Schreiber is uh, super tall. Uh, Leah yes. Schreiber's half-brother. I most recently saw him in Defending Jacob. He played the um, the DA that... Uh, <laughs> Was was giving. Oh, I uh, forgot that he was in that. He was the one that gave giving Captain America a pretty hard time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him from American Gods, and I I know him from Orange Is the New Black, where he's porn stash. Nice. <laughs> and and he has much the same mustache in this show that he had in theirs. The one stranger to me is Timothy Simons. I don't know him so well. I don't know him either, and I really enjoyed his character. Like I just I felt so bad for him he was on veep it looks like he does a lot of voice work and he's someone who also looks quite different from his character in this show that hair man yeah Oof. oh well you know we'll talk about the whole aesthetic yeah. if you look up the actual story apparently pat his character was balding so the fact that they gave him such a 
robust head of hair. That hair is luscious. <laughs> it's an interesting choice. I, I was impressed that they were able to like tone down Pablo Shriver's hotness. They made a very beautiful man look very not beautiful. A, a sky blue leisure suit will do that. <laughs> oh my god! Just you know, for me, it was the glasses. You know, there there was a lot going on with the the costume work here. And then Jessica Biel, I I love her. I love her. She's a very understated kind of a person but then like when she when she's doing her thing oh my god she just she slays it i like her in this genre because she's believable as like this you know super innocent creature that needs protecting like i'm thinking of her in the center that she doesn't look capable of doing these things like the and the characters that she portrays don't look capable of doing these things until she she busts out i liked that they really sort of went into her life well, she normally plays the the object of desire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I understand this was 1980, but my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a, a tough stretch to yeah. an object of desire. No, I, I thought she really did the like all American homemaker thing very well. Yeah, I agree. She wasn't even born when this story happened. Whereas Betty Gore, Melanie Linsky's character, you know, had a lot of the same wants and desires. Yeah. But just emotionally, she was was equipped another way. (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know if this was based in reality or not, but I I looked at her and saw postpartum depression, which is, of course, something that was not which was not talked about at that time. It wasn't a thing. Mm. But that's what I saw kind of her character struggling with and also realizing that that sort of put people off of her, but not knowing how to, you know, do anything about that. Yeah, the stigma of mental health care was still pretty strong well past this time period. I really felt for her character. I thought she did a nice job of, you know, the people around her maybe thought she was a little off putting, but you saw the pain the character was in. For sure. Like you could sense that she she knew she she needed to be doing, quote unquote, better. She wanted to be doing better, but she just couldn't. She just couldn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was like stuck in her own rut. And there was no like Colleen, like you said, there was no help mechanism for her. I really enjoyed the vulnerability that mm-hmm. she allowed us to see when we did see Betty kind of like drew me to her whereas like if if she hadn't let us in as much as we saw like you could just have turned her off as someone like you're just okay you're just one of those like annoying type of people (laughs) but you see a little bit more behind the curtain as to her pain and some of the insecurities that she had and and those real world like she she said she's like i'm struggling with the baby weight right yeah. from mm-hmm. her for prior baby her prior baby is in elementary school yeah, like right? five yeah. by then yeah. yeah five or six something like that it's a, a tagline that i can relate to you know it's yeah. it's so i appreciated them giving us those vulnerable moments to see what was really kind of going on with her any additional standouts i know we kind of just ran through like the top build characters but was mm-hmm. there anybody else who was kind of a standout for you the children that they cast were all great child actors you know that sort of thing where sometimes a child actor comes on and they, yeah, they say the lines, but <laughs> yeah. you just have to click over this thing in your brain. You're like, well, child actors are not that great. These kids, uh, they looked like 
family units. I don't know how long it took to get those shots. Maybe they had to do all day to get some of those, you know, shots around the table with Pablo Schreiber playing the silly dad or whatever. But it all seemed very natural. Yeah. I liked the kids. And especially Christina Gore, played by Antonella Rose. There's a couple of moments where her character stood out to me. And also... Yeah, we're like... Yeah, I won't be specific, but I agree. There's a moment between Becky Montgomery's... Avon Lotz plays Becky Montgomery and Antonella Rose plays Christina Gore. And there's a moment between the two of them that I'm just like, somebody needs to make sure that like they get on more shows and things like that because they they can't be more than eight years old. They're amazing. We're going to move on to Colleen's favorite, favorite section, (laughs) the setting, the visual aesthetic. They are anchored in a very specific time and place. And I appreciate that they went for it. There is some of the more attractive late 70s going on, and there are some of the less attractive late 70s going on. What's the attractive part of the late 70s? Um, I thought her like peignoirs and stuff were kind of fun that she was wearing. I actually also just kind of like a good pussy bow blouse. That was the, kind of a good period for that too. Paul, you mentioned the uh, powder blue leisure suit that uh-huh. was on. It was at, it was an on Pablo Schreiber. It was on Timothy Simons. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he also, according to IMDb, is six foot five and a half. So they what? they put a very tall man in a very powder blue jumpsuit. That's a lot of material. <laughs> That's a lot of legs for days in powder blue. Woo. Probably not vintage. They probably made that, and I applaud them for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised when the producers told us that it had been filmed in Georgia. I mean, there was one scene where I thought, okay, that's not really a Texas house. And this is not mm-hmm. a, a spoiler, but there's yeah. a there's a house with, with a large wraparound porch. It's more of an office than a house. Oh, yeah. Well, um, mm-hmm. And it's got, a, it's got round roundness. It's got a big yeah. circular. Looks a little more Victorian than yeah. the rest of the houses. You can find that in Texas, but not as easy as you'd find it in Georgia. <laughs> yeah. There are still lots of parts of Texas that look just like that in terms of the the way the houses were designed and looked I will, like that. I will say I wish they'd have cooled it a little with the colored filters. I know a lot of that's just an aesthetic choice, but there was a lot of like, everything's red. Everything's yes. orange. Everything's yellow because it's the 70s. But then again, I kind of associate the late 70s, early 80s with the color brown. I think <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of brown. I think it's because a lot of the clothing I had as a small child had browns in yeah. it. Um, yeah, drab brown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will say my mother had the exact Tupperware set that she takes to. I made a note of that. I'm like, I wanted to do a poll. Who didn't have that Tupperware? Yes. It would be an easier question. That is true. And we also had that cat's eye game when I was a kid. Oh, really? So, yes. <laughs> I believe my parents might have had that owl thing. That mm-hmm. was. Uh, I think everybody had that owl. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was like, you know, that came with like the keys to your house when you got the mortgage (laughs) at 18%. (laughs) Yeah, I agree about the red. The red, I think, was trying to tell me something. I was supposed to be associating the red scenes, but I wasn't making the mental leap right then to get it. Whereas the rest of the colors, the yellows, the brown, not grungy exactly, but just 
late 70s early 80s that's what it screams to me when i see it whereas like say the aesthetic that they're going for in the second wonder woman movie where it was like the mid 80s so it was all the bright colors everything was shiny neon and that kind of stuff you still know where you're at when you're watching that but unfortunately we hadn't got to that point no (laughs) yeah in time it takes a couple years to get there yeah but it wasn't like necessarily a happy time you know you were coming out of a very bad recession Mm-hmm. In the country, uh, unemployment was very high. You had the misery index of like the the rate of inflation was very high. The rate of unemployment was very high. So it's not it's not all that shocking to me that you do have sort of the, the reflection of that in the clothes, the cars, even the, even the glasses. Like I come down to the glasses. These people in this show, like they're portraying people who are in their I'd say like mid to late thirties, early forties, right? Yeah. I was assuming much younger. I was assuming they were early 30s at the most because they. I was assuming they got married young, had the kids yeah, young. Yeah, that's true. But they all, like the clothing, everything was weighing everybody down and made look, everybody Have look a lot Have you seen high older. schoolers from the late 80s? They all look like they're 40. <laughs> yeah, I, but, but right. I think that's or where I was kind of going with that is that the way in which they dressed and the way in which, you know, so they accessorized, it made everybody look a lot older than they were. The perm, uh, yeah. yeah. The perm, yeah. <laughs> Although I will say the wig department did a very good job of having her hair reflect kind of what had been going on. Because you you know this, Sheila, you have curls in your hair. Your curls aren't always perfect depending on what's going on. And no. if she was a little more agitated, frazzled, her hair was also a little more agitated or frazzled. So I thought that was a nice touch on the wig department. <laughs> And it's Texas and it's June, so it's going to be a little unpredictable. Oh, no, you can predict it. It's all hot. It's all no, no, no. I'm saying with, with, with hair and curls, like oh, when you okay. have like, curls and stuff, it's unpredictable. <laughs> we didn't see the finished product. We see screeners. We see this ahead of time. So we don't always, like, we, we saw there was, um, we got little notes for the VFX department, you know, that there was going to be visual effects that were going to be added post production. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't see a title card. But I knew from one very specific instance that this was 1980. And I knew very specifically that it was June 1980 because they said that the um, Empire Strikes Back was coming out. Exactly right. And I was like, you're June of 1980. (laughs) (laughs) In the opening credits that it does say the date, Friday, June 13th, 1980. I think there was enough going on that we knew that this was that time frame. And to give you an idea of uh, where in Texas they were, they wind up in the Collin County Courthouse. Collin County is the county just north of Dallas. And so they mentioned Plano. Plano is like the next notable little burg north of Dallas, kind of on the on the eastern side. <laughs> One of the more charming parts of the show was the kind of the water cooler talk that they had about Dallas the TV show. It was like a runner that they had through several episodes where they <laughs> yes. would, when they were together they were talking about what was happening on Dallas. South Fork Ranch where Dallas ostensibly took place is a real place near Dallas that you can go and tour today. You know, they didn't shoot much there, but it's it exists, and you can see it. It's a real thing. And where is the South Fork Ranch in relation to? <laughs> uh, it would be about an, uh, an hour, hour and a half from where they were. 
So there's a couple of Dallas references that I laughed at, especially when um, the there was a group of parishioners sitting with the reverend and uh, Betty at one point says, well, this isn't the Ewing Ranch. Like, I guess with his <laughs> um, talk about uh, Miss Betty's hair. Yes. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> which is also then a very another peg in the the timing of this because Dallas came out in 1978 and ran until 1991. That late? Wow. Yes. Wow. But I say Dallas really had its heyday in the yeah. early 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. yeah. There was a newspaper shot uh, and I screenshotted it because I'm like, what does that say? And it's talking about the movie The Shining, which came out in 1980 as well. Right. Mm -hmm. They do reference that in dialogue. You just got to pay attention to some of the details that the uh, the showrunners, you know, work in to have you appreciate this time just a little bit more. I wouldn't at all be surprised if that wasn't an actual like reprint of the Dallas Morning News review of The Shining that that yeah, was on there. I'm sure they, they could have found that in the archives. The camera lingered on it for a minute. And it's always interesting to me also as, as a movie fan that when, um, you know, several years on from a movie that people continue to love and reference and uphold that you can, it, you can verifiably go back and look at the original reviews, such as the one that was on that newspaper and find that at the time critics might've thought it was crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that critic didn't if uh, the headline did not seem to suggest that they thought very highly of of the movie uh, colleen anything else for you on like the the costume design or anything like that they did a pretty excellent job of kind of nailing the time and the place and the, i was impressed by the hair and the wigs because that can really kind of make or break a period look and i thought they did a really good job especially with the guys which can be kind of a hard thing to do you know, I, I felt right at home <laughs> in my younger days, you know, like watching these characters in this show, because like they did give this the authentic feel. And like I said, the glasses, the glasses were very spot on. And that is also another thing that if you don't get like that period's sort of accessories right, it doesn't give that authentic feeling. And I, I, mm -hmm. I keep going back to the glasses because like there wasn't an attractive person <laughs> Wearing glasses, like, you know, Sherry, Sherry, I saw no glasses on her. She, she looked just fine. But, you know, the glasses just, it made everybody there just were look There were lots of close-ups of Candy's glasses and, yeah, the, uh, and the other. square, I call them like Golden Girls glasses because they oh remind me of Sophia Estelle from Golden Girls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my mom wore those until a long time. My mom wore those a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much a person's choice of which church they go to, like, enters into the conversation elsewhere in the country. But in Texas, it's kind of a big deal. And so the fact that, that they're so active with their church, they go to various church meetings and groups and it, outside yes. of just the normal services and all that, that's real. They were there pretty constantly. Yeah. Right. And the social circles being wrapped up in the church as well. Absolutely. And that is totally real. Um, even today, <laughs> in in these darker times, um, it, it's it, that is the way. And then the other comment, and this is, I'll try to be unspoilery about this, but there's a moment when some neighbors converge to try to sort something out. And one of the men is carrying a gun. Again, in other parts of the country, I don't know how that situation would go down in terms of people having guns, bringing guns to an event, 
mm-hmm. where one may or may not be needed. But in Texas, again, totally believable. I forgot to mention in time and place that made me just scream laughing was when she's getting ready for her first um, like, assignation, I guess. And she, A, like chicken fries a steak and B, <laughs> makes a like green ambrosia salad <laughs> to bring with her. Yes. In the Tupperware, but it, specifically the the Cool Whip green food coloring dessert. I have a friend who's a pastry chef and we joke about sort of mid-century rage in <laughs> in cookery and how they came up with these sort of terrible foods. And maybe that was women like expressing their rage and serving their menfolk like jello monstrosities. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So the fact that she was packing like a full meal with, you know, ambrosia salad or whatever, the, you don't see what the ad, what the final result of it is, but you see her adding a lot of green food coloring to whatever it was. And, and creme de menthe as well. Like she was boozing it up as well. Yeah, it just it made <laughs> me laugh. So it sounds like we agree that they nail the time period through many different avenues yes Uh we've given you as much spoiler free content as we possibly can at this point first pass without the spoilers recommendation is this something you should watch should you do we love it do you should you leave it i would put it in the love it category often for some reason after i meet the creators of a show all of a sudden i do feel strongly about it i liked it before we got to to talk to them um and i think it it is what we've just been talking about in terms of them creating this mood through aesthetics, through effective costuming and the actors going all in um, with their characters, making you know believable uh, characters that create a lot of pathos and, and make me wonder what's going through their minds. You don't feel that with, a, with characters in, in lots of shows, but I did here. Yeah, I even even for a non-true crime fan, I think that there's enough to recommend here in terms of just getting really effective character work and a, and a nicely told version of this story that engages you and makes you wonder because they do tell it a little out of order in in terms of you know the information that you have <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> after watching the pilot. Yeah, there's a lot to engage uh, a person that that enjoys high quality TV. I would say watch it. It is, like Paul was saying, definitely kind of high quality TV. They definitely put the kind of care and maybe budget isn't the right word, but they it's it's evident that they put the effort into this production. I would honestly say it could have been a four episode rather than a five episode, but it's very enjoyable. It's well made. I think it's well put together. And we talked a lot about how they brought this to life and, and brought us back to you know we, we basically opened a time portal and stepped back into 1980 because they did have such authentic elements from the costume design from the set design the caliber of the acting is something that i found very compelling uh i enjoyed watching this story unfold even though it was told out of order i understood why it was done that way uh in order to develop the story i I like the fact that it's five episodes. I agree. It probably could have been pared down just a little bit, but I understand the mechanism in which they also want to to drop this. It's 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 different, right? It, it, they want to do this one day a week event, 
which if you call back to our days in, in the 80s as children, if there was like a TV miniseries on for the week, you knew what you were doing for those five days or four days, whatever it ended up being. If you go back to like North and South and Roots and... The Thornbirds. The Thornbirds, mm-hmm. right. Shogun. There's so much. <laughs> yes. That's what we did. (laughs) (laughs) Gather round, children, for tales of long ago. (laughs) I actually appreciated sort of this movie of the week feeling that this type of series is after. And we even, Paul, you and I, we we asked them a little bit about that. And they they went all in for that, you know, Uh, agreeing that that was sort of the output that they were looking for this. So it's it's an event, right? So they're not doing the the typical, you know, dropping of all the episodes all at once or the Hulu way of doing like one or two episodes and then week by week. I loved how the story unfolded and sort of the the last two episodes have have a bit of a turn in them, you know, so that you're you're seeing the magic act unfold. So I really enjoyed watching it. The, I felt the episodes were jam-packed with lots of little tidbits and character development was excellent. As we talked about, and Colleen, I actually saw in my notes, I was like, maybe some undiagnosed postpartum depression with Betty here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm definitely in in for this. I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, even if you're not a true crime fan, I just think that the story, because it is a true story, so that will grab other watchers. I find the story really compelling. And just the fact that from a true crime perspective, that it's something that we haven't heard before, for me, was refreshing. Okay, so now, if you have not yet watched all five episodes of Candy, please pause here, go finish the series, and then come back, because we're going to dive into the plot points, we're going to talk about the highs, the lows, what worked for us, what didn't work for us. Can we talk about the big thing first? The big spoiler? Okay, yeah. Okay, so we were told to be under wraps about this um, with our pre-release coverage to not let out the spoiler that there's going to be a a large celebrity in episodes four and five. Yeah, so we saw Justin Timberlake coming in as Detective Steve. What is his last name? And he's not on IMDb, obviously, because they don't want to spoil that. He so. says it so Texan that it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get the the name, isn't it? Actually, the addition of Jason Ritter is pretty pretty neat too. That those are the the leads' husbands, both of them, as the cops. I actually asked Paul before we started recording. I'm like, where was Justin Timberlake? I didn't find it. I was looking. What? <laughs> and he was like, the, the cops? <laughs> Jason Wait. Ritter. I I knew I knew him. I was like, I don't know who that is, but I know I know him. Justin Timberlake. I missed entirely oh my god well then that's pretty good yeah. costume design on him well, i, guess. I yeah. did not know that jason ritter was melanie linsky's husband yep oh um, i like that even more now yeah because <laughs> they were so playful together as the cops when they were yes. like describing for the for the lawyers how they believe the yeah. crime went down the crime hap- yes. yes i but, actually wrote down that that's like the, the comedic relief that we needed for this uh series there really wasn't a lot of high comedy no right but i so colleen so you didn't realize that that was justin timberlake at all nope nope (laughs) oh wow i saw i was saying i saw that like sci-fi time thing he did years ago but i haven't haven't seen a lot of his acting i don't think so oh see i recognize him as soon as like he pulled open the the closet he pushed the clothes over i was like Mm -hmm. look at you yeah but he didn't he didn't really look like himself because he and he had one of those bad haircuts the you know the mustache is definitely 
a good disguise for him. And then he didn't act like himself. He was very, yeah. he was very Texan. Uh, <laughs> well, and I was also assuming he was going to be like a person in the courtroom or something that would have been technically like a day or two of filming. I didn't think he was going to be in as much as he ended up being in. The producers told us that they got to meet the the actual guy um, oh. that he's based on. They made him sound like in real life, he's kind of a character. So the fact that Timberlake was able to give us the few, some of the few laughs available in this, in this series yeah. matches up. You know, there was still a few people around, you know, it's, it is mm-hmm. 42 years removed now. But when they started doing this, they were, they were cute on the, uh, the it was 41 years removed when they were doing the filming and stuff for this. So I thought that that was uh, the little tongue in cheek um, with the 41 blows. Ominous uh, number. Yes, very ominous number. Now that you told me that Jason Ritter is Melanie Linsky's husband, I'm just like, oh, it's just like the synergy of that. It's just so cool. <laughs> How did the pacing of the story work for you? I'll start with you, Paul, since you had the question before. Well, um, as Colleen mentioned, the pacing could have sped up a little bit and uh, eliminated a show. I'm not I'm not sure exactly where I'd trim the fat, but I'm, I think it was there to trim uh, and, and go with four episodes. But the five night drop also feels right I'm, i think they probably made the best choice for them the the way that they told it with like the big title cards that were like the day she died and all that yeah that was not exactly a very 1980s way to to do that but still cool uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was very bold and in your face and and so instantly you started creating questions about timeline and and am i now am i looking for different things that are going to tell me where I'm at in time, or are they going to spell it out for me every single time? And luckily they made it easy on us to, to know where we were in time. But still, that element of picking and choosing what they told us and when, I usually enjoy. Um, you remember when we when we covered the, um, the stand, Sheila, mm-hmm. and they messed with the timeline there? You and I were cool with it, even though it seemed like most fans hated it. <laughs> but... For me, it worked. Yeah, it worked. And it it added some value to the story in sort of like turning the hands at different times. In that case, I had read the book like three times, seeing the other mm-hmm. miniseries a couple times. Right. Like I needed something fresh. Uh, yeah. and, and so in this, I hadn't known the story and I didn't that created helped create and perpetuate a little bit of the mystery for me. So I, I liked it. What about you, Colleen? Did the to, to telling the story this way, did it work for you or did you were you confused by anything in, in the timeline? No, I wasn't confused by the timeline. And I liked that they sort of, we knew where we were ending up, but they let us figure out how we got there gradually. I liked that. The only thing I didn't really like was in the end, in the courtroom scene where she's explaining her version of events. I feel like the filmmakers made it pretty clear that she was not necessarily a reliable narrator. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't feel like they really gave us why. Oh, I agree. And I found that a little frustrating that they very clearly came down on the official record is not the truth. But I felt like her actual motivation was a little opaque, even to them. It felt like they were pulling back. Well, in talking to the creator, Nick, I believe, given what he told us, that he thinks it was all bullshit. 
Um, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I feel like they made that clear, which is good. I would have appreciated them tipping their hand a little bit more about what they thought her actual motivation was. I would have liked to have seen something about this shushing and the the fraying, I guess, of her nerves mm-hmm. to be telegraphed a little more obviously besides the stepping out on her husband. I think that's part of it. I would have appreciated a little bit more to show us that she was building up to something yeah i guess i felt we like we spent a lot of time kind of looking at her looking at herself in a mirror we got a lot of shots of that and again she just felt very opaque to me and i sort of wanted a little more insight into her thought process or her drive yeah it was like very suddenly at the end there she's on a hypnotist's couch yeah, and, right. and then all of a sudden that's, you know, motivation. The, right, the motive or the, you know, sort of the triggering event. Yeah. But, you know, that's actually really interesting because I watched the series twice because I always, my, that's how my brain has to process these things. You have to enjoy um, it and then mm-hmm. analyze it. And then, <laughs> exactly. And then take my notes. Exactly. Upon a second watch, if you, I don't know if you remember, but there was like these cutaway scenes to when she was a child and she's running and she's got like a little bit of a bloody forehead. But it was all very, very dis- disjointed it didn't really kind of pay off when we were getting these backwards flashbacks because we didn't arrive at anything like you said paul until she was on the hypnotist couch so we did get these little snippets backwards into time but they didn't have the payoff well and yeah and if they feel like the story is bullshit then the backward snippets don't really mean anything why have them at all yeah we never needed to see that it might have been a little more effective to show us some of that for, for Betty. Because, I mean, they showed us a little bit of how she deals with stress, you know, like with their class and getting fired right. and all that. But that mm-hmm. was very limited in terms of that stuff. Or the unfortunate situation with the uh, foster kid. Yeah. Right. But that was present time, pretty much, more or less. Yeah, pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do love me some Raul Esparza, so I will always watch him be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, he he, I, he's kind of getting his his niche in here, you know, with the law and order and, and now this. I like the fact that the DA was dismissing Don Crowder's prowess in the court that he's yeah. he's, he's his not, antics yeah that he, you know he's not a murder attorney so like what is he doing here but yet he was able to build a believable case for the jury and sowing enough reasonable doubt like he did his job and he did it quite masterfully i thought in the better call Saul kind of way yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. putting it on the record that the judge is biased it was i also love the fact that they gave us sort of like where these people ended up at the end i i, I enjoy that tie up at the end um and the mm-hmm. fact that for me the payoff was don crowder ran for governor of texas did he ever become governor of texas or he just no okay he yeah. just ran for it. but like he's standing outside the courtroom he's holding his handcuffs up high because he wants to be he wants to be the spectacle candy's moment he's also making it truly truly about him it just nails home the point that everybody in this series is a selfish a selfish prick really he's got a he's got a touch of tiger king in him Uh. yeah yeah (laughs) everyone's out for themselves is really kind of what i took away from from this story is that there's a lot of selfish people in the world and people just going to do whatever they want to be happy to find happiness however they can and it's just almost like everyone else be damned with the writer robin telling us that she was fascinated by the expression of of female rage Mm -hmm. uh, um Mm -hmm. and, and that being her desire this 
scene at the end when it's Elaine that moves in. Yes. Mm-hmm. How uh, she starts uh, manipulating the daughter's uh, food intake and and, yeah. and and telling her and all that, and basically starting this girl on the track that will put her <laughs> right in the same spot as all the other women that they yeah. portrayed in the show. Uh, were there other instances where you guys detected the the writer coming through with that? utter distaste for the the box that women of the time and women now still find themselves in one of them is what colleen was talking about where she's making like the chicken fried steak and she's making so she's like violently preparing this food because she's in a frantic rush and her nerves are all about her so i i felt the encapsulation of her her distaste or her malcontent with with her current situation when she was cooking basically anytime mm-hmm. candy was cooking i felt that she was beating the shit out of those bowls yeah well i mean like she was making like spaghetti at yeah. one point and i mean oh my god i felt so bad for the spaghetti in the pan because it was literally being beat up so like the rage cooking for me was definitely once Robin had told us that, you know, she was trying to capture the the rage in which these women felt in their own unique ways. You know, once she drew a line under that, then I was looking for the instances where I saw that. And for me, it was anytime Candy had to be in her homemaker role, not necessarily her mom role. Uh, she said that, you know, the kids were going to make you know, make Sundays with the kids. And then she's like, oh, God, oh, yeah. I got to go to English class or whatever it is. Oh, honey, could you just like, you know, microwave the I don't know what he said, the chocolate and like, you know, chop up the peanuts or whatever. Basically set up everything before she left. Right. Like, like, I'll make the Sundays, hon. Don't worry. You go to your class. But can you do this, this and this before you go? And just the look on her face, it it just it showed that rage, that that undercurrent. And it was it was really well done with Betty. Like any I just felt her frustration because she's obviously someone who is very insecure in how she feels so anytime alan left her she would feel this level of abandonment it was mm. almost like nothing that she did was good enough without him there to side to, to to bolster her how alone she felt right so like her uh-huh. rage came from a different point and anytime that she was put in a vulnerable position like this you know this anger would and it was like deflected anger because she would call like alan's supervisor and you know give him hell for sending him out on the road so these two women are deeply unhappy with certain circumstances of their lives and they don't have healthy mechanisms to address it, which is, I think, more to the time than anything else. The other line that I that really stood out to me, and I don't know if anybody else thought about this either, was um, Lizzie Borden. Not only because of the rhyme, Lizzie Borden was acquitted and so was Candy. And I think they really drew a line because they had the prosecutor saying, oh, they're going to go with self-defense. What? Yeah. But really what it was, was giving the jury a reason to acquit a nice, white, upper-class, married woman that they didn't believe could do with something like this. And they didn't want to believe that she was capable of something like this. So basically giving them any out at all with the sort of cockamamie, repressed, my mother shushed me, they went, okay, great, we can write it off, we can acquit her, you know, like done and so that i thought was sort of an interesting parallel candy was who she was and it would have been very uncomfortable for them to say oh this mother this housewife this perfect creature 
we're going to sentence a mother to die. Yeah. Right. And the right kind of mother. She's not a single mother. Right. She's not a divorced right. mother. She's, you know, a married mother with two, you know, a boy and a girl, you know, kind of American ideal. And She fits the mold. Exactly. It makes you wonder the reconstruction of the incident where Betty goes into the garage mid-conversation and comes back with the axe. Yeah. Doesn't that feel a little like they needed an excuse to introduce the axe, clearly. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But this was the best they could come up with. And maybe it was just informed by the complete bullshit with which they consi- they uh, regarded how the story was told in the court of law. Just like, yeah. what? what do you mean? Just an axe just kind of appeared. Well, I guess an axe just has to appear in the, in the story then because it doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't make sense any other right, way. Like it, it popped up pretty quick right. in, their, in their narrative there. Yeah, I was sort of looking forward to them giving us the bullshit version and then maybe a little hint of what they thought actually had happened. But <laughs> no, didn't. But no. But there was enough, I thought, in that last episode when Candy was recounting version of events. There was enough, I'm going to use the word smugness, like on her face to show me that that was not the truth. It was very subtle. It was, it was how she looked, especially when she was finishing her testimony. She just kind of like sat and she kind of like shimmied herself. Like she was like regaining her composure, but it's just the look on her face. And it was definitely through the second watch that I was like appreciating her body language a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't believe a word out of this lady's mouth. Not that I didn't in the beginning, but mm-hmm. it was just watching it through the second time and and sort of, you know, putting all of this together that I was just like, excuse me, then the story about this man that she was with from early November to early December. I'm like, I don't believe a word of that at all, that she was with another man after the um, affair ended. And she didn't want to name him because she didn't want to damage his family. And then, like, the ladies in the courtroom were all a flutter. And I think that that's why Sherry didn't come back. Her friend, remember, she said her friend was yeah. missing from the courthouse. So, I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering if Sherry thought it was possible that it was Candy with her husband. But I don't even think that there was anybody just based on how uh, how she was holding her, how she was conducting her testimony. And I think that's why she didn't want to out him. Either that. Or the other half of me was like, it was Don Crowder who, who was the person. She couldn't very well say that. Hmm. Interesting theory. Mm-hmm. Did you guys look up how uh, Candy Montgomery has turned out in real life? No. I was satisfied with the fact that she like sort of started over and changed her name. She did. But she is now working uh, or at some point was working as a mental health therapist. Yes, they said that in the in the title card. <laughs> uh, her exact whereabouts are not currently known, oh, but no. wow, could you imagine? I need mental health help. I uh, look up on my insurance. I find a person. I go to them because that's who my insurance says I can go to. And then later on, you find out they murdered somebody with an axe. <laughs> Could you you imagine? Had to to outdo Lizzie Borden by one whack. Nice. (laughs) Well, everything's bigger in Texas, right? So, (laughs) if you do a visual comparison of Candy with uh, Jessica versus Elizabeth Olsen, Jessica skews much closer um, compared to um, the pictures that they're putting up on the love and death imdb entry they're not really obscuring elizabeth's face with the big glasses and Mm -hmm. and the weird hair or the period appropriate hair if you will (laughs) (laughs) it'll be interesting to to compare the two actually in terms of the way they tell the story etc oh i just wanted to go back to um the the kids the children actors Mm mm-hmm 
there's a moment in at the funeral between Becky Montgomery and Christina where Becky comes out from the pew and walks Christina up the aisle, consoling her, has her arm around her. And I was just like, dang, for like two kids under 10 years old, like that was some range and some depth of of character portrayal that I was I was actually pretty moved by it. I, I thought it was a very human touch, but to have it like played out with kids, I was just I was stunned at the the level of professionalism and then you know going back to the interview that we did with um with robin and nick they said that these kids were like more professional than the people who've been doing this for 30 years yeah the moments when christina i think uh were trying to protect the foster brother those stood out to me as like Wow, because you can you can read her face and she's like searching because she for some reason this child has to be the adult right now because her mom is freaking the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, she and, locked herself in the bedroom. I'm not coming out until you two settle down. Yeah, all that. And letting and, the kids run amok outside. I'm like, oh no, that would never happen. <laughs> well, even the kid acting like a brat did a pretty good job of being a believable brat, not someone yeah. acting like a brat. He wasn't a brat. It's just it, I understand he had yeah. he was, was portraying a kid that had he was a tough emotional position right then but <laughs> but really big feelings and not the words to describe it. right exactly i don't want to be insensitive to someone in that position if you're the dad in that situation you'd be like stop acting like a brat that was another interesting uh thing and perhaps part of the commentary on on uh, female rage that that i wanted to mention was uh how the husband alan i guess could get away with not knowing how to change a baby's diaper what? Yeah. Oh wait, no. This was part and parcel of the time. I I was appreciating how authentic that was, and the <laughs> fact that he put dishwashing liquid into the dishwasher. Oh my god! Because he had no idea that there was actually like dishwash detergent. Like, He's an allegedly dish- an engineer. Come. On. <laughs> yeah, but like men were not, you know, home engineers. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I agree that that's that's true. But that that might have been also very harsh um, light to shine on it the way that they did. Like this guy is totally unengaged at home. Just can't doesn't even know how to run dishwasher. What change a baby's diaper? It was all on her. They wanted to make sure mm-hmm. you knew it was all on her. But honest to God, like that is how it was at that time. My mother took myself and my brother to Ireland. I was two. My brother was, I was two and a half. My brother was about 18 months. The dishwasher was not run. The washing machine was not run the entire time that she was gone because he did, my dad did not know. And my mom tells me this story. Like this, this was something that, you know, she was commenting when I first got married that my husband was like, you know, helpful around the house. Like he, he vacuumed, he dusts, he does like a whole bunch of things. I'm like, yeah, your father had no clue. Honest to God, like intelligent man, carpenter, like able to build houses didn't know how to run the appliances inside that house. Change a diaper, that was not something that was done by many men. I'm not going to say all men, but many men for that time period, that was the woman's work. No wonder she was exhausted. But when I saw him putting the dishwashing liquid into the dishwasher, like I just laughed. I was like, that is so on point. <laughs> like if he'd actually grabbed like the cascade, I would be like, that is so not, so not real. <laughs> We've dissected this five-episode run, and we've given you sort of the highs and lows. So let's give you our final tally. Is it worth your time to watch? Is it something you love? Is it something you'd leave it? I would definitely say love it. I would say watch it. And I would think about its portrayal of America's expectations of women and sort of how they got where they ended up. 
at the end of the product at the end of the story i think that's a really good way to like go into watching this as an essay on feminism in 1980 i would encourage people to to look at that and and try to consider the what the writers were trying to say in addition to, to you know just telling the story they i think they had a message that they wanted to get across and and the way that it does end up i think they want to make it clear like no one learned a lesson here. <laughs> yeah. They want you to, the viewer, but at the time, no one learned shit. Um, and that's too bad because it cost this lady her life. So, yeah, I had recommended. I, I still have that beef about wishing that Candy's building nerve fraying would have been stitched through from start to finish rather than just built up completely at the end but um i'd recommend it i agree with both of you i think this is a love it i think this is something that is worth watching also just from the the way in which it's being released this five episode movie of the week kind of throwback i think that's an interesting way to approach this because it's just not something we've seen in our on-demand bingey world so just having a different spin on it is something like when I saw the trailers, it's saying that it was going to be released one night a week leading up to Friday the 13th, not knowing when I watched the trailer that this happened on a Friday the 13th. I just thought it was an interesting way to do it. I like what you said, Colleen, that this is sort of uh, a study on on women in this time frame. And I think looking at it through that lens, looking for these moments, how are these women's story being told? What is the takeaway? I I think that there's a lot in these five episodes. Like I think it's pretty jam-packed with a lot of details. And we didn't even touch on some of the the conversations that Candy has with the pastor. There's a lot in there as well as to to point to the repression that women were feeling despite the advances that had happened through, especially through the 70s, the 70s was a pretty tumultuous decade for, for women's rights. So having this sort of at the bookend of that decade is a very interesting study in, in where women were at at the time and in looking at where we're at now, uh, especially in the home dynamic. I think that's very interesting as well. Um, and the, the outlets that these people were, were looking for is also a very interesting take on, on how they were handling handling their stresses because they didn't have a lot of the same um, mental health outlets that we have today. So it's just an interesting throwback, I think, to look at through the, that kind of a lens, seeing this repression and seeing that, you know, th this was everyone's neighborhood. Like, you know, these types of things didn't happen in every, you know, maybe not the extremes didn't happen in every neighborhood, but things like that led up to say like before the murder that happened in every town in america right there's always going to be like the the scandals that happen from you know the pastor and his wife divorcing to you know extramarital affairs so yeah i just i think that this was an interesting way to tell the story and also the fact that it is a true story that we haven't really seen out there in the mainstream was also another really big hook for me I thought it was a very well done production, so I definitely think it's worth checking out. I think it's worth your five nights investment. This takes us to the end of another True Crime TV Love It or Leave It episode from Pod Clubhouse. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this podcast. 
Ratings help, reviews help. It helps everyone find the show so they can find out about candy and you guys can have a really great conversation about it as well. I am Sheila with Pod Clubhouse. This is Paul with Pod Clubhouse. This is Colleen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Aww.